Good morning. Our scripture text comes from Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 through 46. This is found in your pew Bible on page 828. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how was he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, in, in a very true sense, we are on both sides of this pulpit uh, standing and sitting under that very same pair of questions. What do you think of the Christ? Whose son is he? And we confess as we begin that you are king, you are Lord. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. You are the firstborn from the dead. You are the head of the new creation. You are the lamb who was slain. You are the lamb who is worthy. You are the king who comes to earth with a sword out of his mouth. You're the Alpha and the Omega. You are our master. And amazingly, you are our servant. You gave your life as the ransom for your people. And so now, would you grant that we would worship you over your word in measure and faithfulness that would be appropriate to your great saving work for us. And we particularly, my brothers and sisters, join with me and particularly intercede on behalf of those who have, who have not been born again, who are not united to you in repentance and faith, and are walking under the wrath of God, perhaps not even knowing it, that today you would rescue them that they would hear your voice calling to them and that they would rise and follow you. This can only happen by your power. And we pray in your name. Amen. Friends, the cross of our Lord Jesus is our feast. It's our feast, an inexhaustible feast, and from that feast, Jesus makes a provision. He draws for us uh, uh, from, that, from that cross. He draws for us as his beloved people uh, provisions 
for our life, provisions that carry us all the way to glory. There is nothing that we need that we will lack, and everything that we need he will give us from his cross. And the cross is also the fascination of Jesus' people. It's not an appendage off in the corner of the Christian's life. That's not the way the New Testament describes it. It's not the way our experience shows us the cross's power. The cross is the fascination, the inexhaustible fascination of his people. That's why when you read the New Testament, you come across statements like Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 2.2 when he's addressing the church in Corinth, which has all kinds of very messy pastoral problems. And he says in the very beginning of that letter, he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What? Nothing? And the answer is nothing, yes. It's because... Paul understood as a he understood that the cross and all that God achieved there and all that God did there and all that God was there for us in Jesus Christ and all the benefits that Jesus Christ purchased there and all the wisdom of the cross and all the power of the cross is all that the Christian ever needs it's all that the world needs now, I remember many years ago when our family was on vacation and we were in Yosemite Valley and I locked our keys in the car. And so I had to call a tow truck driver. Now, some of you have heard me tell this story before. I had to call a tow truck driver. There was this very nice young guy. And here we are in the Yosemite Valley, which if you've ever been on the valley floor in Yosemite, you know, El Capitan is over here and Half Dome is over there and Yosemite Falls is over here and just all these beautiful waterfalls everywhere you look. You just can't take it all in. And I remember riding in the tow truck with this young guy and asking him, I, I, I said, can you ever stop being amazed at, at living on Yosemite Valley floor? And he says, you know, after a while you just get used to it. It becomes background. And I said, Oh, how could that be? And yet I knew instantly how it could be. Because I, as a Christian, stand, El Capitan is a pebble. It's a molecule. It's not even a molecule. It's a quark. It's a subatomic particle compared to the cross. And so I just acknowledge today that there is a tendency, there is a temptation in my own heart that I know you share with me, a temptation to stand at the foot of the cross and not be fascinated by it. And so let's refuse together, my friends. Let's just resolve together in the presence of God at the foot of our Lord's cross to, not, to resist with all our might just floating down the current of our indifference. Let's not go that way. Jesus is always talking about his cross. Always. His mind is fixed on his cross because he knows his own name. His name is Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And he knows that the only way he's going to save his people from their sins is by going to the cross for them. 
So he is always thinking about the cross. Every conversation he has in the Gospels, he is thinking about the cross. He is always explaining his ministry and his role as Savior. And this morning's exchange is absolutely no exception. Uh, Last week, we looked at his exchange with the Pharisees, or one particular lawyer out of the Pharisees, who asked him about what the greatest commandment in the law was. And we thought together, through the lens of that discussion, we thought together about Jesus' humanity and the way in which that, that exchange leads us to think. Thinking about God's greatest commandment to men uh, opened the door for us to reflect on the life of obedience that Jesus led as a man so that we would come to understand the cross as the work of a man for men. The full humanity of Jesus Christ, which is utterly essential to the gospel because men have sinned and therefore a man must suffer. Men have not fulfilled the law of God and so a man must fulfill it. And the good news of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ, that was done. But this morning, there's a different exchange. And the theme of this exchange that calls for our fascination and that is a feast for us that Jesus is spreading out before us is the reality of his full deity. He's not only fully man, he's also fully God. And that is good news. So this morning, I want to think with you about how the cross is the work of God for men. It's not just the work of a man for men, but it's the work of God for men. And we're going to do that under two headings. The first is how Jesus, uh, through this exchange with the Pharisees, demonstrates his deity in order to explain his cross to us as the work of God. And then we're going to reflect together on three implications of Jesus' deity for the meaning of his cross. What difference does it make? Okay, so let's, let's dive in. So if you think about how chapter 2 has unfolded, uh, particular, uh, chapter 22 has unfolded, and particularly the, the last uh, three or four exchanges that go on that are recorded in chapter 22, Jesus has been asked his thoughts about Caesar, He's been asked his thoughts about the resurrection and the afterlife by the Sadducees. He's been asked his uh, thoughts about the greatest commandment. And all of these are really important questions. But now, now Jesus, it's Jesus' turn to question his questioners. He now takes the agenda into his own hand for what he wants to talk about and what he wants us to think about. And what he does in the course of four, a series of four questions, is he drives the discussion to the reality of his deity, his identity as God incarnate. And he does this. And really, this is the most urgent question. When he asks, what do you think of the Christ? Whose son is he? He is asking the most urgent question facing every human being. This is the destiny-defining question that rises up over all. Who, what do you think of the Christ? Whose son is he? What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? And the Pharisees, they start out well. They say, well, he's the son of David. And, and that's, a, that's a biblically correct answer. 
son of David. They answer, the Messiah is going to be the heir of David's throne, which is exactly what the Old Testament promises. So they're right about that. But you notice that Jesus doesn't even commend them for that right answer because it's, 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 it's biblically correct, but it's also biblically incomplete. That's not the only thing that the Bible teaches about the Messiah. Yes, the Pharisees are correct. The Messiah will be David's uh, royal descendant. But Jesus, when he turns to Psalm 110, verse 1, what he shows us is that the same Messiah who is David's descendant is also at the same time going to be ascendant over him. So we have, to, we have to look at what Jesus is saying. So what, da- what Jesus does is he turns to Psalm 10, uh, 110, verse 1, which, by the way, is the most quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament. You didn't pay for that, but I thought I'd give you that. And when you get, when you get to the end of the message this morning, you're going to understand why. So Jesus says, Okay, he's the son of David. Now, verse 43. Okay, then. How is it, then, that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord? Now, see, what Jesus does now is he says, Okay, then I'm going to take a text that's, by this point, about a thousand years old. Not by the point we're talking about it, but by the time Jesus quotes it. It's a thousand years old. And it's not in some obscure corner of the Old Testament like Obadiah 7. It's in the Psalter. It's Psalm 110, verse 1. It is a a well-recognized messianic psalm. It's not hidden in a corner. And even his Pharisee listeners would acknowledge as uncontroversial David's authorship of it and the fact that it was inspired. So that's why Jesus emphasizes these things in verse 43. How is it then that David, they don't dispute that, in the spirit, in other words, it's an inspired text, they don't dispute that either. And he's saying, okay, let's take the inspired text that you and I agree on. And you say that the Messiah is only David's son. Well, then explain this to me, how it is that David, in Psalm 110, verse 1, calls the Messiah, who is supposed to be a son, calls him his Lord. And look at how Jesus shows that to us from the text of Psalm 110, verse 1, which is in uh, verse 44. The Lord said to my Lord. Uh Uh-oh. Right there. We've got two lords. That's interesting. Two lords. There's more than one Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. Do you see that already? There's a question. What does that mean? But do you see it already? The Lord said to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. There's two parties there. Now, what what is not clear in the English, but is very conspicuously clear in the Hebrew, is that the same word for Lord is not used both times. So let let me translate it. 
or let me, let me explain how it, how it reads in the Hebrew. So this would have been what Jesus was working off of. The Lord, Yahweh, I am, said to my Adonai. So in other words, the name Yahweh was sacred. And when the Jews would read the Old Testament and the name Yahweh was written in the text, it was considered so sacred that when they read it, they did not pronounce it Yahweh. It was too sacred to pronounce. So when they saw the, the, the consonants for, that, that spelled Yahweh, I am, they would pronounce it Adonai. So when you get to, so in other words, Adonai is used throughout the Old Testament as another word for God. So what Psalm 110 verse 1 is saying is that Yahweh said to Adonai, God the Lord said to God. It's absolutely staggering. This is in the text that David authored in the spirit that's right in the middle of Israel's worship book. This testimony that, that both are God. So therefore the Messiah is above David and he is equal to Yahweh. Now that's staggering. Equal to Yahweh and yet distinct from him. Now you can see why this is so important in the New Testament. Because this is a very prominent and very clear indication that the Godhead is plural. And you notice even Jesus in the way that he quotes the text is Trinitarian. David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, calls the Messiah Lord. And then the first words out of, of, out of Psalm 110, verse 1, the first word is Yahweh. So we're talking about three uh, divine beings. Now, the momentum of this question that Jesus asks, which is what he concludes with in verse 45, then, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? See, that's the punchline. And the momentum of that question is this, the incarnation that's the, first, that's the first place the momentum of that question carries us, is the meaning of the incarnation. Because Jesus himself is the complete answer to his own question in verse 42. He is David's son. On the one hand, he is David's son and royal heir. He descends from David. Do you remember how Matthew begins? Jesus Christ, the son of David. And then Matthew gives us a genealogy that shows how Jesus emerged from David's line. Fully and really a man, therefore. United with his people's nature. But that's not all that he is. He is also David's Lord. Which is why, which, remember his baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, the father declares. So he is not only fully and really a man, but he is also fully and really God. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. So you think about Jesus' name that the angel of the Lord gives to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 that we thought about last week, right? He 
you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means either, and either one of these translations is valid, either Yahweh is salvation or Yahweh saves. So in other words, Jesus' is is, Jesus's name means God is going to save his people. But the question is, how does he do it? And he does it by being Emmanuel. Jesus, the name Jesus is his mission. And the name Emmanuel is the strategy. By God being with us. Not a great man, but the great God man. But we don't stop there. Because Jesus is on the verge of being crucified. And to identify himself as fully God not only explains his incarnation and its full significance looking back, but also, and of particular relevance at the time of this exchange with the Pharisees, necessarily then interprets ahead of time the meaning of his cross. Because it's not just going to be a man who's crucified. It's going to be God. This, this, Jesus' deity, is the precious jewel that he digs up or mines through this exchange with the Pharisees for, for, for not just his disciples at the time, but for us as well. This is the precious jewel of his godness that the Holy Spirit is pulling out of this text this morning and is setting before each of us and spinning before us, sparkling and radiant with the glory of Jesus, and that necessarily shines a stunning light on the cross. To understand the meaning of the cross as the work of God for men. The work of God for men. It had to be this way. There was no other way. You see, when you read the Old Testament, and, and, and the same thing happens in our lives, guys. So, so you read the Old Testament, the Old Testament is about you, okay? Let's just get that out of the way. When you read the Old Testament, there are two main storylines, and they both unfold, and they unfold, they unfold at the same time, and they unfold with increasing intensity over the distance of the Old Testament, and they unfold in inverse proportion to one another. Now, what two storylines am, am I talking about? Well, number one, I'm talking, the first storyline is the performance of God's people, which gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse the farther you get into the Old Testament. The more blessings, the worse the performance. The more gifts, the more clarity, the more scripture, the more deliverances that are given to God's people, the less obedient they become. Now, it's not supposed to work that way. And if in your mind you think that what Christianity is is about finding out what the rules are, being clear about what God wants, and then getting to work to do them, which is how a lot of people think about Christianity, if that's kind of your mental roadmap for what it means to be a Christian, how you're pleasing to God, then the Old Testament is like one really long 
39-book rebuttal. Because that's the first storyline. People don't get better just because they have more information. Oh, my goodness. You know those, those uh, Russian missiles that shoot down airliners? You need a lot of information to shoot down an airliner at 33,000 feet. That's going 550 miles an hour. But that information doesn't make you better. And the other storyline is that at the very same time, over the distance of the Old Testament, at the very same time that God, the performance of God's people is getting worse, God's promises are getting better. They're getting bigger. They're getting more beautiful. They're getting more lavish. Now, that makes no sense to the mind of men. The mind of men that thinks, hey, blessings and good things are in direct proportion to my good acts. It's how we parent. That's how we treat people at work. It's how our culture disciples us. Only one problem. It's not how God relates to men. And aren't you glad? I mean, isn't that good news? So when you get to the end of the Old Testament, there's only one possible answer. God himself has to come. There's only one way that those storylines can be brought together. Because God himself, only God, God has to come because only God can rescue men from their sin. God must come because only God can fulfill and earn these promises. Only his action can secure the promised blessings and can secure the fulfillment of the vision, the world-transforming vision that he lays out with increasing clarity uh, across the Old Testament. And so the Old Testament ends in the book of Malachi with this, uh, with this announcement that the Lord is suddenly going to come to his temple. And sure enough, when the New Testament opens, there he is. You see, it had to be this way. And our lives are exactly the same. The more information you get, you're not improving. Just be honest about it. You cannot rescue yourself. God wants you to learn that lesson. He wants you to know that, not to rub your nose in your own manure, but to raise your eyes up to Christ. And for Jesus to be fully God should put to death the last vestiges of any fantasy we have about treating Jesus as just an example or just a model. In other words, that the cross is, is just some kind of how-to project. That we, we look at Jesus' demonstration, oh, that, that's what it means to love, so I must love like that. Jesus is not just a religious teacher. If we say that about him, if we say that he was only man, we slander him. He's not just a religious teacher. He's not just an example. He's not just a model. He's, the, he's God satisfying his demands upon men by his own self-substitution. 
So by definition, it is a work that only God can do. There is no room for anyone else on the podium of the universe. There is only one way. Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen. Only one redeemer. Jesus doesn't say, I am one of many ways. I am one of many truths. I am one of many lives. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And before we go on to look at the implications, I just I want to pause to, to reflect on something with you, which, which really just struck me and caught me off guard in my preparations, just thinking about it. You know, when we're talking, it's a very theological sermon, okay? We're talking about the deity of Christ, which is not a word that we use very much. And what I don't want to do is I don't want you to, I don't want my response, I don't want, I do not want to be responding to this truth of Jesus' godness in a way that treats it like it's some kind of missing puzzle piece in a theological riddle, and then at last it comes in, now the puzzle's resolved. As, as, though, as though the salvation of men is some kind of riddle. I don't, want, I don't want to do that, and I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to think about it this way. This is utterly concrete. And you notice, you notice what's so powerful is the way in which God reveals this truth of Jesus' deity to us in Psalm 110, verse 1. It's not the only place where he reveals it, but this is very characteristic of the way the Old Testament prepares us, the way the Old Testament prepares us for the ministry of Jesus Christ, God incarnate. Notice here the way that God the Holy Spirit reveals this truth about Jesus to us is in, by, by ushering us in to the divine counsel. It's a drama. And, and, and through David, the Holy Spirit ushers us in to overhear a conversation that is happening between Yahweh and Adonai. And that conversation, we've got two kings. We've been ushered through this text into the very council of heaven, something that has happened way before David ever wrote this text. And we see king number one, Yahweh, lavishing massive honor upon king number two, Adonai. And doing it freely. There's no competition between them. There's no rivalry between them. It's a very unearthly relationship. Do you see that? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. I want you in the place of honor, and I'm going to put your enemies under your feet. I'm going to elevate you. I'm going to work to demonstrate your glory, and you're king number two, and I'm king number one. The greater is honoring number two. Now, that makes no sense from an earthly perspective unless you think about this relationship as a relationship between father and son between father and son, and then it makes total sense. That explains, I think, why king number one's welcome and willingness are so sweeping and unrestrained. That explains why this drama is so compelling. It's not just Jesus' deity. isn't just this fact that is announced from heaven. It's shown. We're ushered into the midst of this awesome, divine drama in, within the Godhead that has planned the permission of Jesus Christ as God incarnate, that this has been the resolve of the Godhead from all eternity. And you say, that's not practical. 
Oh, yes, it is, because it means that the roots of the cross and the roots that underlie the gospel that is being offered to you today run all the way back before the foundation of the world. That's a gospel worthy of your full acceptance and mine. God has had one plan for his people from before the foundation of the world. He is unflinching in his determination to accomplish this. And Jesus Christ, no less than God incarnate himself, has come to carry it out and to succeed in doing so. So that when his gospel is offered, when his invitation is extended, when the truth about his cross is proclaimed and and is uttered anywhere on the earth, he is present with power to save. And it's a beautiful thing. So please don't reduce the deity of Christ to a puzzle piece. It is a divine drama overflowing from the heart of God into human history, into our lives this morning. So now let's transition and think then if Jesus is fully God, what are Three, and they're way more than this. If you could see my notes from this week, you would know that I have cut and chopped and actually tried to exercise some self-discipline here. They're way more than three implications, but I'm Presbyterian, so I think in threes. I only had two headings, so I thought, I need three implications. I'm kidding. And so when you look at the cross, what do you see? I think one of the things we're meant to see... Is, is that the cross is the pulpit. Yeah, I'll say it that way. The cross is the pulpit of Jesus Christ in the midst of the world of men. Even today, uh, Jesus... Now, of course, that's not the cross on which Jesus was crucified. So I'm not trying to turn that into an idol. But I am saying that that, that symbol reminds us and points us to the meaning of the cross. And, and through the meaning of the cross, Jesus Christ is preaching good news. The exalted Lord Jesus Christ is preaching good news, not just in this room, but in the whole world. The cross is his pulpit. He has good news that has not been exhausted, living good news for real people. And this morning, I want to think with you about three facets of that good news. First, how the cross is the pulpit of God's wisdom, Secondly, how the cross is the pulpit of God's righteousness. And thirdly, how the cross is the pulpit of God's love. So let's, let's look at the wisdom of God first. Because Jesus is fully God, the pulpit, excuse me, the cross is the pulpit of, of God's wisdom. It's the pulpit that he uses to proclaim, in the midst of the world, to proclaim the wisdom of God. And that is both comforting and very discomforting to us. For each one of of these three, we're going to see that these truths, the wisdom of God, the righteousness of God, and the love of God, that in the gospel, there is something monumentally comforting. There are many things that are monumentally, life-changingly comforting about these truths. But at the very same time, the gospel is a two-edged sword. And there is something monumentally discomforting about each of these truths as well. So what's comforting about God's wisdom in the cross. What's comforting about it is this, that the cross in all of its rescuing, reconciling, pardoning, sanctifying, eternal life securing power was God's idea. 
and not ours. It's the cherished design of God's heart, not ours. We're not making this up. And what a brilliant design the cross is. Have you ever thought about that? This is one of the reasons why I am so convinced that Christianity is true. It's the brilliance of the cross. The brilliance of the design. You know, the cross is the most staggering work of genius in the history of the universe. The most staggering work of genius in the history of the universe. It is designed and framed by the wisdom of God. You know, in the Bible, when the Bible describes somebody as wise, when, when the Bible says that somebody has wisdom, what it means definitely in the Old Testament, but, but still, through different words, still means much the same thing in the New Testament. It means that somebody is skilled. Wisdom, the Bible equates wisdom with skill. Skill, wisdom is skill at living in accordance with reality as it actually is. But Scripture tells us that Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God because his cross proves that he is skilled at saving in accordance with reality. The reality of God's holiness. The reality of the sinfulness of men. And that cross is very comforting because it reminds us that God is skilled at saving sinners. He designed this cross, this way of doing it. God at the cross put his wisdom to work in a way that would bring glory to him through the salvation of the sinners. Of sinners. Think about it. At the cross, Paul tells us in Romans 4, 5, that at the cross, God justifies the ungodly. Now think about that. That should just, wow. God justifies the ungodly, but he does it in a way that's godly. The same righteousness, friends, the very same righteousness of God that demonstrates our unrighteousness before God in at the cross is turned to vindicate us before God. That's why Paul says at the beginning of Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for in it the grace of God is revealed. No, that's not it. For in it the love of God. No, that's not it. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Oh, what a brilliant design that could only be framed by the mind of God. That the same righteousness that exposes our unrighteousness before God is put to work to vindicate us before Are you not in awe of the cross? I'm in awe of that. And only God could do that. The cross, think about the relationship between God's law and his love. 
at the cross, you know, we think those things are irreconcilable. If God is holy, he can't be loving. He's either going to have to compromise his holiness in order to shed his love on sinners, or he's going to have to, you know, reduce his love for sinners in order to exalt his holiness. And at the cross, God says, I'm not choosing between those. I'm vindicating both because the cross, the cross of my son is the highest summit, both of my law and the highest summit ever reached by my love. And these are not in conflict. It's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. But this same truth, friends, about how the cross is the wisdom of God, this same truth that is so much comfort to us that the problem of man's uh, right standing with God, how can a sinner be made right with God? That is the problem in the universe. And the cross is proof that God has solved it. But that same wonder over his wisdom also produces a great discomfort. And here's what I mean. We're meant to find comfort in, the fa- in, the, in what Jesus accomplished at the cross. But there's no escaping how much discomfort the how of his achievement is meant to produce in our lives. Because it's the how, how Jesus did it, that is so disturbing and so unsettling to us. He did it by foolishness, and he did it by weakness. He did it by suffering. Yes, we love the prospect of forgiveness. We love the prospect of being reconciled to God. We love the prospect of having eternal life purchased for us. We love that. But friends, we need to look, and that's all designed by the wisdom of God, but that same wisdom of God achieved those results by a way that is deeply discomforting to us. Because the cross says this, we were wrong. We were wrong about everything that mattered. We were wrong about the beauty and the goodness of God. We were wrong about the power of God. We were wrong about the glory of God. We were wrong about the purposes of our lives. We were wrong about ourselves. We thought we were much better than we actually are. And God, his response to our dilemma is to humble us. You see, in the wisdom of God, Jesus Christ is on the hunt for the pride of men with his cross. He is hunting down the pride of men with his cross. And God responds to the pride of men by going to a cross. Now think about that. How is God? Here's the dilemma. Men are proud. We're proud before God. We think God is not worth our greatest treasure. We think that we are worth his. And how does God respond to the pride of men? Does he thunder from Mount Sinai and, and make us tremble with his power? Or does he bleed and suffer on a very different mountain. 
You see, that's how God combats our pride, by going to the cross. He goes to the cross himself. The exalted one humbles himself to serve sinners. The prince of life submits to death as the wages of sin he did not commit. You see, in the wisdom of God, the cross is perfectly tailored as the remedy to fit our disease. And our disease is proud, arrogant, standing before God. We look at God and think we're much closer to him than we actually are. That he's much lower than he actually is. And for those of you who are bored at this present moment and who are not trembling before the reality of God, there is proof positive of what I'm talking about. And God answers our pride by going to the cross himself. His wisdom designs the perfect remedy for our malady. And secondly, he calls us to himself through the cross. This is the other way that he remedies our pride. And he calls us to admit that we were wrong and calls us. There's only one way to come to God, and it's through the cross of his son. And in coming to and through the cross of his son, we are having to acknowledge that we were wrong about absolutely everything. Because what the cross represents is it is God's indictment and conviction of the world system of values. saying that the, and, and the imposition of the death penalty on those values. That the world thinks that wisdom is this. Wisdom is power. Wisdom is get more while you can. Wisdom, the world teaches us that strength is being over others. This is not the way of reality. Reality is the way that God says reality is, not the way that men have reconfigured the way it is, but we've lived so long in the upside-down world that we have confused this for ultimate reality. But ultimate reality is the great serving the lesser. And that ought to change our lives. That ought to give our lives a downward slope. So that's the wisdom of God, the meaning of Jesus' deity for the wisdom of God. Let's, let's move on to think about the righteousness of God. The cross is just as much the pulpit of God's righteousness where Jesus is preaching the good news of, Jesus's, of God's righteousness. And it is, at, at the cross, it is good news for us. It's very comforting. Jesus' deity because of his deity, the cross gives us comfort through the righteousness of God. Now, this is really important because we tend to think only about the righteousness of God in one dimension, which is that the righteousness of God is our prosecutor. Now, it is true that the righteousness of God is our prosecutor. Read Romans 1, Romans 1 through about 3.20. The righteousness of God is our prosecutor. But in the gospel, here's what's amazing. The righteousness of God is not only our prosecutor, but it is also our advocate and surety in Jesus Christ. So, so the implication of that is this. The infinite merit... Because of Jesus' deity, the infinite merit, that means his sacrifice had infinite merit because it was the merit of God. 
because of Jesus' deity, his infinite merit answers at the cross for our infinite offense. When he offered himself at the cross as the substitute of his people, he was answering the righteousness of God, the demands of the righteousness of God, with the fullness of the righteousness of God for us. And that means, my friends, that for the Christian, God's justice and our forgiveness are not at odds with each other. Amen? For the Christian, this is not true for the non-Christian, It can be true for you if you turn to Christ today. But for the Christian, God's justice and our forgiveness are not at odds. They're not even in tension with each other. Because in the gospel, God's forgiveness and our acceptance are not the exception to God's righteousness, but the extension of it. A mercy provided and undeserved justice is the Christian's plea before God. Christian brothers and sisters, you have the right in Christ to plead God's justice. And if you are freed by the gospel to do that, which you should be, there will be power in your life. But that same righteousness that comforts us is also predictably very discomforting. And here's why. Because in rescuing us, God shows us that our sin is far more serious than we want to believe. And that's discomforting. That is very discomforting. You know, when it comes to the subject of our sin, there's a collision between two opinions. Our opinion of our sin, notice how I'm framing this? Collision, right? This is not a partnership. This is a collision. Our estimate of our sins and God's estimate of our sins. Now, let me ask you a question. Let's say I insult Maria. And she says to me, you insulted me. You offended me. And and I say to her, hey, you should not be offended by what I did, at least not that offended. Now, you can already tell that's not going to go well from that, right? (laughs) But it shouldn't go well. Why not? The reason it shouldn't go well is Maria, as the offended party, is the only one in our relationship who's qualified to evaluate the gravity of my offense. As the offender, I am disqualified from evaluating the gravity of the offense because by definition, the offense is against her. So she, on the receiving end of the offense, is the only one who is qualified to evaluate that offense. So friends, your sin, my sin is against God. Guess what? He is the only one in our relationship with him who is qualified to know the true gravity of our sin. So it's time for us. You want to know the measure of our sin? You want to rightly estimate its guilt? Look there. God gets to decide what the seriousness of our sin is. We do not. 
So when God calls us to repentance, it doesn't matter how uncomfortable it makes us. His summons to repentance is always in an accurate representation of the true nature of our sin. So friends, you're a non-Christian. You're here. You hear talk about repentance. You say, how serious could it be? Look at the cross. I plead with you to look at the cross because God's measure of your sin was the death of his son. So, Humble yourself by bringing yourself under his estimate. Now, there's another way in which this is discomforting, the righteousness of God. And it's, it, it has to do with the caricatures that we develop of the power of Jesus' work. It's not just that we, we not only deal with cartoon versions of our sin, but we deal with, with cartoon versions of the power of Jesus' work. We're walking around with little cartoon gospels. Much to, the, much to the dishonor of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you, when I was working on this sermon, there was something, a theme in my life that just kept pushing itself out of the text into my face. And you know what it is? It's this. It, I have to admit this. I am addicted to being disappointed with myself. I measure myself against myself. I look at myself, I measure myself, you know, so much when I think about, this is, this is so often the mood music of my soul. It's the soundtrack in the elevator of my mind. Disappointment with Mike. Because, and, and there's a case I can make, right? So much of the man that I am is so much less than the man I hoped I would be. Does that sound familiar to anyone? So much of the man I am is so much less than the man that I hoped and dreamed I would be. And so I end up measuring myself by myself against standards that I set for myself. In other words, I end up prosecuting Mike with a standard of what I'll call Mike's righteousness. And I fail to live up to Mike's righteousness. And into that chaos of false measures strides Jesus Christ preaching the good news of his righteousness for me. And he he commends his own righteousness to me, even as he exposes the God-dishonoring false standards that I'm measuring myself against. Mike? Yes, so what, Mike, if you didn't live up to to Mike's vision of Mike? Did you live up to God's vision of Mike? And the answer is no. No. But on the other hand, even if you did live up to Mike's vision of Mike, could that possibly be anywhere in the same universe as what God has provided for you by way of vindication and pardon and honor and acceptance through the righteousness of his son, which is the very righteousness of God, no way. So friends, yes, it is true that it is by the grace of God that we are what we are. And hallelujah, 1 Corinthians 15, 10. But it is equally true that we are in Christ. We are what we are by the righteousness of God. Jesus lived and died and rose again so that we would carry around in our hearts the good news of the real gospel, of an imputed righteousness of God to us, not a little cartoon version that is a dull crackerjack counterfeit. And so, friends, let's, let's seize, let's receive from Jesus Christ and his labors on our behalf what he intends for us to receive. 
And then finally, the love of God, which we could spend weeks on, and you think we already have. But we can't, we can't finish without this. Jesus' deity means that the cross is also the pulpit of God's love. When you look at the cross, when you think about the cross, my friends, when your mind is led to gaze upon the cross, we should be hearing the good news of God's love. God's love for the world. God's love for us. You know, in John chapter 15, Jesus says, greater love has no one than this. I mean, you could, you could finish this, I know, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And what John's describing, right, is the, is the best love that a human is capable of. It, that a human, the best love that a human is capable of, or what Jesus is describing is the best love that a human is capable of, which is, is that at our best, we would be willing to lay our lives down for somebody with whom we share mutual affection, our friend. But God goes so much further than this. His love is so much greater because Romans 5.8 says that God shows his own love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Now, friends, I need you to think about that. When we were at our worst, God loved us. When, we, when our guilt was its maximum, God loved us. When our pollution and uncleanness before him was, were at their maximum, God loved us. And he didn't just love us a little, and he didn't just love us on the surface, and he didn't just love us from afar. He came in the person of his son, and he died for us. He didn't come to just show himself, which would have been an act of incredible love, but he came and he bore our sins in his body on the tree. And even today, at this moment, you and I look at this cross, and God is showing his love to us. He is not done loving sinners. He is not done loving the world. And that love will change your life if you let it in. You can walk away from it. You can ignore it. You can disbelieve it. But that will not change in one respect its full truth. The cross means that we must never wonder about the love of God. Of all the questions that you and I have as Christians, the one question that must, that must be off the table forever is whether or not God loves us. Loves us not a little, but loves us with no boundaries That is the one question that must not be on the table in the Christian's life, no matter what happens to you, because there is no suffering, there is no trial, there is no burden that comes close to approximating what God's love for you led him to do. Friends, we need to repent of the way in which we ascribe to God a lovelessness that the cross proves he is never guilty of. No, 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 no. The cross means the one thing we must never wonder about is the love of God. We must always wonder at it. His love carried him to the cross where he died for you. Now I want you to think, and I want to leave you with these questions. His love for you 
carried him to the cross. Where is his love wanting to carry you? His love carried him toward, the en toward his enemies, toward the unlovely, toward the broken, toward the heavy laden, toward the messy, toward suffering, toward sacrifice, toward the unclean. Where is his love wanting to carry you? This love is too big for us to... He drew no boundaries on it when he lavished it upon us. He held nothing back. So we cannot, as the recipients of this boundless love, then proceed as we receive it to draw boundaries on where we will let it carry us. If we're doing that, and we all are to some extent, to the extent that we are doing that, we are not understanding what he has given to us. So may that change us. And may it never be that we should boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, today we have stood together at the foot of your cross and we have, we have wanted to feed on your wonders there. And we confess that still our appetite is less than you deserve it to be. And we have, we have sought to honor you by being fascinated again with the treasures that you've wrought for us there. And we confess again that we, don't, we struggle to see the true extent of our poverty and our need for your riches. And so we pray that your spirit would preach from the pulpit of the cross to us in our lives this week. Preach the good news of your triumph there as the God as God for men. And we pray in your name. Amen.